0: Hey, this is Sayem Bhutani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science, a podcast for data science enthusiasts where I interview practitioners, researchers and cagglers about their journey, experience, and talk all things about data science. welcome to chai time data science show the show bringing you quarantine content containing interviews with my machine learning heroes i am sayam uttani if you haven't yet checked out the other podcast that i've recently launched chai time data science news ctds.news please go ahead check it out if you're interested in finding a short data science news podcast this episode is all about open source and machine learning in this episode i interview one of the co developers at Scikit Learn, and at the time of recording, an associate research scientist at Data Science Institute at Columbia University, Andreas Mueller. This episode is slightly different compared to all CTDS.show episodes. We talk about how Andreas's overview about open source and machine learning and Scikit Learn itself has evolved over the years, how his approach to creating open source APIs, his understanding of open source has evolved over the years that he's been active in the open source community. There's a lot of discussion around scikit-learn. And I thank you all for all of the questions from the AMA all of which have been discussed. We also discuss learning through materials and Andreas's take on the recent developments in deep learning. Andreas has also been teaching a course of machine learning at Columbia. And we also talk about his uh, his previous work there, and his uh, advice for learners. This is a new format of episodes on ctds.show. So please do let me know if you enjoyed it. And for now, here's my conversation with Andreas Mueller. Please enjoy the show. Everyone, it's really a big honor for me to be talking to one of the core devs from the Scikit-Learn community, Andreas Mueller. Andreas, thank you so much for saying yes to my request.
1: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Really excited to be talking to you. So I want to jump right into a few questions. Uh, these will sort of skip over a few details because you've already been sharing uh, most of them through a lot of interviews that I found while uh, doing my research. So I'll have those linked in the description instead. Uh, my first question would be, you got involved in scikit-learn uh, during the early days. How has your contribution uh, changed and evolved over the years?
1: Uh, that's a good question. So, I mean, I'm not sure if it's even fair to say I started uh, in the early days, in early days for adoption, but probably not in development, because most of the algorithms were already there. Um, so it was really already a fully-fledged package when I started. And um, but so, I think what has most changed is that, well, at the very beginning, I, I added some like small algorithms, but I was mostly always on like the more maintaining and bigger picture kind of stuff. And um, I think what changed is that right now, I'm not as um, involved with the development most of the time. I am uh, I was more invel- um, involved with like finding funding and um, writing the government's document, uh, working on the roadmap, of- Finding people to work on a project, and so it's like I do more of the like organizational stuff and less of the development. I guess that's like a typical thing in an, any organization. Like uh, the more experienced you become, the more you go from like the hands-on work to the more like project management work.
0: You were able to get your ideas translated into uh, real code through managing multiple people. Do you miss the development days?
1: Oh yeah, it's like uh, development is is great, and I, I mean, I always try to get back to it as much as possible. Um, it's like I, I saw a tweet from someone recently. I don't know, maybe it was Hillary Mason or something like uh, that was saying that. Oh my God, I'm uh, how much I miss development, and I was like, <laughs> yes everybody that uh, does a lot of other stuff like we really we, we started for the coding because that's the thing that we enjoy and so one of the things I did is I started this project called Dabble like a year ago or something or maybe yeah. it's even two years now um and so because that's like very early stages that's I can actually I actually do like a lot of the coding there which is very different from scikit-learn where scikit-learn moves very slowly and um like it's much harder to contribute. So basically, I create myself a little bit of an outlet to uh, like do more of the very quick uh, development, uh, which is a lot of fun, I think.
0: Okay, can can you tell us more about dabble? I think it's, it's true to what it allows you to dabble with projects. Can you share a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, uh, sure. So it's like, still very early stages. um, But the idea is basically to make a more accessible data science machine learning library that allows you to um, get prototypes very, very quickly. So I guess it borrowed some ideas from things like uh, pandas profiling, for example, where, Mm. um, and, and some like things in the visualization community, we are trying to find good visualizations automatically. So first the idea is to get a good idea of your data set and then automatically run some simple uh, automatic machine learning uh, things. So a lot of scikit-learn allows you to build very complex pipelines and like basically do whatever you want. Scikit-learn gives you a lot of freedom, but for a lot of practical problems, you actually don't need a lot of freedom. And basically if you run like uh, some uh, Gradient boosting, it's probably gonna work out okay. And um, so that will include a quick way to tune things like gradient boosting and SVMs and random forests by a successive halving. And there's like basically a built-in list of classifier tries and of regressors it tries. And um, but then it focuses more on doing the pre-processing for you automatically trying to detect types. Um, yeah, doing some visualization and then hopefully soon also doing some more um, uh, model explanation, like showing you the relevant metrics and visualiz- visualizing them and uh, showing you like partial dependence curves, rotation importance, um, these kind of like uh, debugging uh, tools that you want.
0: It, it's it's uh, sort of a tribute to the running tweet joke that in, in industry, they really just use logistic regression, which is just good enough. So is, is it uh, aimed for the industry so that people can iterate it real quickly, come up with prototypes? I mean-
1: yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, I'm not sure if it's just for industry, like the same as student science, but it's uh, used to iterate very quickly because I think basically, uh, like everybody has their favorite version of like the machine learning workflow diagram, where you like start with collecting the data or defining the problem and so on. And you iterate building models and you put it into production. And I think um, really having this be a cycle is very important. And so I want to great tools that allow you to make the cycle much faster so you can try out something and then maybe go back and uh, collect new data. So we have very good tools for like the model tweaking and uh, tuning and that's what scikit-learn is great at. But then people, I think spend too much time and trying to build the perfect pipeline for a data set instead of like maybe thinking about what is the problem I'm trying to solve? What are the metrics I should be looking at? Can I collect new data? Um, And so all these like, all these other steps of this uh, workflow cycle, they get too little attention. And so basically, I wanted to say, well, this actually the model building part is the easy part. And so you can try to automate this away as much as possible. And yeah, yeah so basically, if you do, if you try logistic regression and gradient boosting, it's probably going to be fine. But really, you should t- think about what does your data mean? Hmm. Um,
0: it, so as uh, if, if I understand correctly, this is uh, the iteration pipeline for software 2.2, so to speak.
1: Yeah, a little bit. So um, one of the things that it skips is uh, productionization. So it definitely doesn't aim, it's definitely not production ready right now, but it also doesn't aim to have this part of the cycle. So it's the like data scientist exploratory analysis um, cycle and um, not like like there, there's the bigger cycle of, of obviously of going to production, doing continuous deployment, doing uh, monitoring, dashboarding, and so on, which are also all very important parts. Um, but they are not what I'm what I'm targeting. I'm basically targeting the things that are already there in the Python ecosystem. So the Python ecosystem is not that much used, I guess, in the in uh, these more productionizing issues or the SciPy ecosystem, at least, is not. And so I'm trying to like. Um, Collect a little bit more of the things that where the uh, Python ecosystem is already strong, like exploratory Mm -hmm. data analysis, machine learning, and trying to put them together to like a simple to use coherent piece.
0: Which will allow to bridge the gap between uh, the data scientists and the production team, which for many big industries tend to become different.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely still going to be a gap to be solved, but uh, yeah hopefully that the the people will then uh, focus less on on the endless tweaking of the model and more on the overall process. Uh,
0: You've also given a talk on this topic of auto ML. What are your thoughts on it in 2020? I'm biased towards auto ML, would love to hear your thoughts.
1: Um, It depends. So there's actually there's quite like different flavors of auto ML. And so I'm Maybe obviously more on this what's now called classical ML side, so the stuff that's like it learned is strong and less the deep learning side, and so there's really a lot of interest in auto ML and deep learning, and um, like if we neural architecture search and this seems like quite an interesting topic, but it's definitely not my expertise, and I I can't really say much about like what's happening uh, there, mm-hmm. but in terms of the more classical stuff. Um, I'm I'm a big fan and a friend of the group at um, at Freiburg from Frank Hutter and Matthias Feurer I'm not sure if you know these guys. They did uh, SMAC and AutoSK learn and uh, they won a, bu- a bunch of AutoML competitions. And I, yeah, I really love their work. Um, and so, in one of their works, they found basically if they create a portfolio of good algorithms to test, I, I, I love this portfolio approach. It's what I implement in Dabble. Basically, they found uh, if you just use XGBoost, it's as good as trying to learn, uh, trying to tune overall pipelines in scikit-learn. Um, that is kind of shocking to me, but mm. also not that shocking. This is definitely, this comes with a bunch of caveats in that, like, they only tried a couple of the pipelines and they only gave it so much uh, computing power and they only used this handful of data sets. So um, I wouldn't make this claim that this is true in general, but you can solve a wide variety of problems with a very limited number of, uh, of machine learning pipelines. Hmm. And so, in a sense, this is um, a win for AutoML, but it also means you don't actually need that much AutoML if there's only a small number of good candidates, then selecting among these candidates is pretty easy. And so um, that's why I like this, um, this portfolio approach where basically you figure out a um, list of good candidates, and um, then you do some efficient search over these candidates. And so even if you just do something like hyperbrand or success of half things already quite, quite effective. And I mean, then there's like, there's very interesting, more fancy stuff. There's a great matrix factorization approach. And then there's a bunch of approaches that try to incorporate um, runtime of the algorithms more. That's something that's not fully explored yet. I think it's very important to um, look into the runtime of the algorithms. But I don't think anyone has uh, found a real solution there. But so I guess my, my main thought is like in classical ML, it seems like you can get away with relatively simple solutions um, for like the majority of cases. Um, and so automata is good, but it's also gonna be easy. I should also caveat this by saying, this is for getting like, I don't know, 95% there. You can hmm. probably spend much more compute, do something much more advanced, do something much more fancy and spend a lot lot more work and get like the extra percent. But um, one of the things that, I I'm doing with Dabble and that I think is true for many practitioners is it doesn't really matter how much like the last percent might not matter as much as um, moving on to the next product. Like uh, the question is how much impact can you have if you spend more time on this project versus another project and very often um, building a very, very complex solution and spending more time is not um, as beneficial as building a good enough solution that's robust and then go to the next thing.
0: Yeah, I think uh, AutoML would also in in sorts allow this so that you don't have to just focus on, let's say, picking between models, you can leave that part to automation and focus on other stuff that sort of require domain expertise.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess the, the question for me is sort of a trade off the trade off of, do you really want to run a really like big expensive search over everything, like how much is the benefit? I mean, if it's, if it's free to do so, I guess there's no downside to doing it. Like if you have infinite compute, then you can run the biggest model of search. But if you do that and uh, the outcome is that it's basically as good as what you had to start with, then um, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. I- I'm not sure exactly what the trade-off is and how much work you should actually, actually put into uh, tuning something as good as possible
0: understood. Now I want to come back to uh, open source and API designs. I think scikit-learn was si- slightly or actually much ahead of its time in terms of design, because it was ahead of the curve for the machine learning hype. Uh, what are your thoughts on creating good API designs, uh, especially for open source or otherwise? Um,
1: sure. So, I mean, I can't take any credit for most of the scikit-learn API, but I think it's some- by being involved in a project is something that I very much uh, came to appreciate. And whenever we're trying to uh, create uh, just a new class or a new kind of functionality, we were always really looking for um, creating easy to use API's. And um, yeah, I can I can give give some ideas about what my strategy there is. So one of them is um, really use case driven. So um, think about what do the users want to do with the API and how will their code look. So this is a mixture between sort of test driven and development driven develop, uh, development. So I really mm-hmm. like like this idea of development, uh, documentation driven development. So there's um, two things that I think about in the API. One is how easy is it to teach? And then the other one is how easy is it to use once you understand it. And so um, if you have something that is like super elegant code, but it's impossible to understand for a newcomer, it's probably going to be hard to sell this. So, you want something that is a good compromise between being uh, like succinct and expressive and easy to teach and understand. So, in the beginning, no one will have a mental model of how your code works. If it's easy yeah. for people to build the mental model of how your code works, they will be less surprised by what it does. So, having your interface be easy to explain is really important. But then obviously also want it to be easy to use. Um, maybe one of the things that, um, at least now in scikit-learn is something that's very much at the forefront is usually the, the all the discussions are about API and not about the implementation. Like scikit-learn implements some like somewhat gnarly like numeric optimization stuff, right? But the implementation is basically always the easy part. Yeah. Um, The hard part is how to make the interface, because the implementation you can very easily change later on. The interface is very hard to change in an open source package. So often, um, yeah, we spend much more time on the interface than on the implementation. And so, uh, what should also what should the behavior be? Like, let's say the user specifies this parameter of this combination of parameters, what is the expected outcome? Does the expected outcome make sense? and like, how do we document this? Again, this is the explainability. Like, if we add a new functionality to some, to an uh, existing object, we probably need to add a new parameter or a new option. How can we make this option discoverable? And how can we make sure that it plays nice with all the other options? Um, and there's like, and and it's like things are really silly sometimes, or you think they're silly. There's been a um, a very obvious thing is in the one hot encoder you. Often, we'd want to limit the number of uh, um, uh, categories to like some maximum. Let's say uh, you have 100,000 categories, but you only want to hon- hot encode the 50 most common ones. Like you assume there's a long tail, and you put everything else in the other category. And that's like a very obvious thing to do, and it's something that Cyclone should have, but ha- does not have right now. Uh, hopefully, it has it in the next release, but the reason is that the one hot encoder already has so many options, that it's very mm. hard to make sure that like all the different combinations the user can specify makes sense. So what happens to unknown categories? What happens if the user said, well, I want to drop one of the categories there. There's like lots of weird edge cases that you wouldn't think about um, like, how does this like combine with having missing values and so Things that seem simple can be quite gnarly in in the implementation details.
0: The challenge really becomes how do you come up with how would people intuitively approach this? How would you assume others' intuition about the API of sorts?
1: Oh yeah, but that's write the documentation, right? So hmm. I mean, we we rarely write out the full documentation, but we are all, I guess. We, we know how we would write, a document. we've written enough documentation that we can think about it. If you haven't written that much documentation, just write the documentation. It's not that much work. And like, uh, then maybe have one other person read the documentation, at least so, I mean, code reviews are obviously super, super important for API design. So I just so the model and cycle learn is that um, HPR needs to be reviewed by at least two other core developers. Okay. And so um, like, if your code is not reviewed, then probably your code is bad and your API is bad. Sometimes you don't really have a choice uh, if you don't have anyone to review, but like you should review the code and you have people like uh, as like one, ideally two people uh, look at your code. And so if you write documentation, and someone else can read it and understand it, then uh, then you know sort of what kind of mental image it will form maybe. I mean, okay. you can't know perfectly, but if you have a hard time writing understandable documentation is probably a problem.
0: That again, uh, hints back to your documentation driven development, as you had said, now yeah. uh, coming, coming to the evolution of the framework, Scikit uh, sort of evolves slowly compared to other frameworks, at least if I may say so. And uh, the shift in the community, how, how has your opinion changed in the shift from classical algorithms towards now deep neural nets, like really make uh, transformer models that have been coming out?
1: Yeah, so first of all, just a, uh, a slight pet peeve of mine. It's like, it's kind of funny that people say this is classical ML and deep learning is a new thing. You know, it's like, historically it's the other way around, right? Neural networks are uh, much older than like random <laughs> forest and gradient boosting, um, but anyway, so like, in the mo- I guess in the modern form there, they're different. But so scikit-learn is slow for two reasons. One reason is, well, let's say three reasons. First reason is we don't have enough resources to review all the code we would like to review. Mostly, it's easy to get resource more easy to get um, resources to write code, but it's hard to get resources to review all the code that we want to review. Um, the second is we want to be careful. A lot of people rely on this. So we don't want to make any like um, quick drastic changes. Uh, we and that's a reason to be conservative, right? We, we're intentionally conservative. And the third is that um, like compared to the deep, what's happening in the deep learning community, there's not that much super exciting stuff happening in like the classical algorithms. So obviously there's like probably by now there's like thousands of papers every in Europe's in ICML. Yeah. But uh, the question is how much impact will these have for practitioners? And so it's, um, yeah, it's often tweaks to existing algorithms. And um, like, it's quite rare that it's, there's like a new thing that's going to be a big improvement that's going to be clearly delivered to practitioners. Um, like th- there's stuff that happens to like the grain boosting implementations, making them a bit faster and a bit nicer. That's cool. There are some stuff in like auto ML success of halving and uh, that's kind of cool, but there's not like, there's not big splashes. There's, uh, yeah. For example, the the, the whole uh, transformer thing uh, is like still relatively new, and mm-hmm. um, clearly made a big impact. Like, um, but but like I don't know what the last thing is that made a big impact in like classical ML. Um, it might be hyperband, um, which is I don't know how old is that now, five years. I think so. Something like that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things happening in like the interpretable uh, ML space, but also there. So I guess like CHAP is newer than that. And people are quite, quite interested in CHAP. Um, That's so also the the sort of scikit-learn so wants to just add, okay, th- maybe there's one more reason I should mention is cycle learning wants to add things that's kind of stood the test of time, because otherwise, hmm. you end up with a lot of code that's not maintainable. If you add everything that beats the benchmark, you'll end up with hundreds of algorithms, most of which are um, out of date. Yeah. So uh, I actually had a conversation the other day with um, someone working on Shogun. Shogun um, is also a machine learning library for C++. Um, started mostly focusing on kernel uh, machines. It's um, it's a pretty great library. It didn't get as much adoption as I could learn. They might start, have started a little bit earlier or about the same time. And so they had a th- slightly different policy. They added a lot of state-of-the-art algorithms, so algorithms that were just published. And so that's nice because you can reproduce results in current papers. So they had a lot of cool stuff about like multiple kernel learning. And I, I used that in my thesis. Um, but um, the problem is now the person that, contributed this algorithm has long graduated or went to industry or something, no one yeah. understands the code and no one's really interested in the code because there's something new and shiny out there. Mm. And so you end up with a lot of code that's very hard to maintain. It's maybe not even worth maintaining. And so cycle learn basically set, decided we're not going to do this. At some point we wrote something in the FAQ that says um, we only accept new algorithms if they're three years old and have uh, 200 citations plus. Um, and so this is look. Somewhat arbitrary, but it got us a lot less emails that say, hey, can you implement our fancy new algorithm? Because the answer is just no. Here's the criteria. It's very clear.
0: There's also, I also unfortunately spend a lot of time on Twitter. The ML Twitter community is great. Uh, Denny Brits had shared this tweet. I think if if the authors can share the Git log of their new paper and their new SOTA, it just becomes one line of sorts for for some of the uh, recent SOTA architectures at least.
1: Uh, sorry. Can, can you say it again?
0: By by, so I mean state of the art. So yeah, Dennis yeah. had uh shared this tweet that if some authors can share uh can just uh summarize their paper with a git log of the difference, it just yeah. becomes one line of difference for a state of the art new model.
1: Yeah, and that yeah, I mean often it's the 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 the, the small tweaks, right? Um, I mean even even things that make a big splash like. Uh, a dropout is not that many lines of code, right? Yeah. It's just it's a it's very hard to say which line is the right one.
0: <laughs> Certainly. Now, uh, coming to your mission, uh, your mission on your personal website is to create open tools, uh, open source tools to lower the barrier of entry for ML apps. Uh, how uh, how much of that goal would you say you've achieved? How far are you from let's say just checking uh, checking that box off of your to do list?
1: I mean it says make it more accessible right and so you you, you can always make it more accessible I think um so I mean there's been a lot of progress that I cannot take any credit for right there's like so it's like a huge community that has a lot of amazing work going on um so if, if ever this box get checked it's definitely not due to my work um so but th- there's things that I don't like and basically I, I wouldn't say we're close to what I want. One of the things that is a pet peeve of mine is that in scikit-learn, it's very hard to deal with feature names. So if you build a complex pipeline, it's very hard to understand what's going on. And um, I hope we're gonna solve this this year. Uh, I probably say that last year already, okay. uh, maybe even the year before. Um, and I also think there's, um, and and there, there's like a couple of stupid things in scikit-learn like that, where that should just be fixed. Um, there's also definitely some friction integrating between scikit-learn and pandas still. Um, and like there's things in visualization. So I'm doing some visualization in, in dabble and um, that's, uh, Based on Matplotlib, and I think it's it's helpful because like there's not really that many machine learning focused visualization tools. So if you look at Seaborn, Seaborn does sort of a gl- lot of uh, great statistics plots, but actually it's kind of tricky to do the plots that I want to do with it um, because the, I'm not really the target audience. Um, yeah. and um, like Seaborn is expanding. Um, a little bit more to like uh, wide form data, and so that might help. But um, I don't think it's really the right the right venue to for machine learning uh, visualizations and for like high dimensional data. Um, there's Yellowbrick, which is uh, doing some visualization some top of scikit-learn, which is cool. Um, we're also now adding a bunch of um, visualizations to um, to scikit-learn itself. So there's like I mean, it's super trivial stuff like there's plot rock curve and plot, a- plot AOC and plot confusion matrix, which are like very easy, but also again, you need to get the API right and everything. Yeah. And, um, but it's, it's, also, it's also nice if you don't have to write 10 lines of matplotlib code to get a nice plot of a rock curve. Um, um, like a bigger picture issue for the ecosystem is sort of what's the right plotting library Um, Matplotlib is going through some restructuring They want to change their data model. Um, But there's also a thing about like, okay, everybody is now on, uh, or many people are doing Jupyter notebooks. So maybe something that is more directly integrated with the web would be better for interactivity. Interactivity is a little bit sluggish with Matplotlib because of the architecture, I think. I'm not sure if it's fixable, maybe it is fixable. Um, But if you look at the interactivity of like, Altair or Plotly or Bokeh, there, it's like much quicker, and so then the question is like, well, a lot of these libraries are all built on matplotlib. Um, do we want to uh, f- swap out the back end? And if mm. we want to swap out the back end, like which of these ones do we want to pick? Like, is it a good idea to have, as a community, move to Altair or move to Plotly, um, or move to Bokeh? And so. I don't think there's an answer. I'm I'm definitely not the person that's going to answer this question, but uh, I think it's something where, if we don't know how to plot well, then we can't say we are accessible.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the next question comes from an anonymous redditor and editors love controversies. The question is: uh, the biggest controversy you've seen in the scikit Learn community?
1: Biggest controversy? I don't know. Do you mean be- would you say between uh, developers or in the community? Um, uh
0: let, let's say uh, between uh, just, just in, in the community.
1: In the community. Oh, there, there's like, there was this amazing flame war about logistic regression recently. So it was kind of started by a tweet by Zach Lipton, um, who, who's a really cool guy. And I really I love his work. But basically, he, he's, he tweeted that, um, well, how many papers have wrong results because logistic regression, it's like a learner's penalized. And uh, I don't know if you saw that. I and did, did. Uh, uh, yeah, and so that was like, several developers muted the thread because it got so bad. Um, and yeah, so th- th- that was fun. So I mean, the main thing is, if you're a statistician, you don't want logistic regression to be uh, penalized. And they said, Oh, the, the, uh, the second learn developers, like they didn't know what to do, uh, if they got NANs an in their correlated features, or something like this. Um, obviously, the point is that We don't want to get NANDs if we have correlated features, which is why we regularize. So if you have a uh, predictive perspective, then uh, regularizing makes a lot of sense. Like from a predictive and from optimization perspective, from a statistical perspective, it makes no sense at all. And so I think this is something that comes up in a couple of places: is um, that people that have more statistics um, or or inference view they are like very put off by scikit-learn because Mm -hmm. this is really not the problem we want to solve. Um, but in Python, there's also no package that is as mature as scikit-learn that solves these problems. So there's um, stats models, and stats models does uh, a bunch of great things, but stats models doesn't have that big a community, that big of a developer base. And so um, if you look for logistic regression, it's very likely you'll find scikit-learn before you sci- find stats models. But if you're a statistician, then this is not what you want.
0: It makes sense. Um You've been involved in scikit-learn for a while. Uh, when do you think, when do you envision 1.0 of the version uh, <laughs> of the framework coming out?
1: This is also a controversial question, um, but this is more among the developers. When do I envision? So we always say next year, every year, <laughs> maybe. Um, so the question is a little bit, what is the What's list missing of-
0: out re- From the framework in, in your- yeah, Exactly,
1: there's a question is like, do we want to make a list of requirements? Um, actually, I, I wrote a grant to NSF that had as one of the to-do items figure out how to do a uh, 1.0 release. Unfortunately, they didn't get funded because they said uh, uh, second variant development doesn't help computer science research. And so, uh, what? Any, any, well, the the NSF has is, uh, has interesting opinions on open source. Um, anyway, so. Um, I, I keep arguing with them. But, well, we'll see maybe yeah. some, at some point, some something comes of it. Um, wait, so um, 1.0 The question is, do we want to make a list of features and then say, once we have these features, we want to release? Hmm. And if so, what is this list of features? Or should we just not care about the list of features and just release? So for me personally, one of the things that I really care about is this feature names thing. So I feel like if I create a pipeline and I have a logistic regression at the end, I should be able to figure out what do the coefficients in the logistic regression mean. If I don't know what the coefficients in the logistic regression mean, that's like that's a really bad situation. And actually, if you can easily build a cycle learn pipeline where it's really hard to figure out, if you have like an imputer and one hot encoder, and like column transformer and um, and a feature selection or whatever you don't even need to be that that tricky if you just have an imputer and a one hot encoder it can be already tricky and so this is something i'm sort of passionate about but i'm all, but maybe we also don't want to want to block um for that there's actually there's an issue on github that is um what do we need for a 1.0 release hmm. um but yeah it's it's a little bit unclear and probably what it needs is a dedicated push which is why i wrote this 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 um Grand proposal, but I don't think any one of the developers is currently making this push. So basically, if I say, Okay, my thing is now I want to do a 1.0 release. And if I spend my energy on rallying the, de- the other developers behind that, then we could probably make it happen this year. Um, but or if any of the other core developers does that right The question but the thing is, that this is not anyone's like really high priority. And so it's probably not going to happen this year unless someone comes along and makes it a, their priority.
0: Understood. Now, uh, this is a question that I see like many OK boomers making a mistake as uh, people skip over SKLearn because deep learning is cool right now. Just the newcomers, if I may. They just jump onto deep learning, just jump onto transformer models uh, without even uh, knowing what SKLearn is, unfortunately, for some of them. What, what are your views on that?
1: I mean, it depends a little bit on what they want to do. Right. So um, I think there's only a very small subset of machine learning problems that are best solved with the transformer model. And, mm. uh, but if you want or, to Or like, deep learning
0: broadly speaking, maybe yeah. like, let's, let's do that.
1: Yeah, so it quite, like if you if you want to do like applications, it's probably a bad idea. Mm. If you want to do Well, I guess if you want to do research, it depends if you want to do more fundamental research it's a bad idea. But there's also people who build state of the art deep learning um, like solutions um, without like a strong, like computer science background. And so you can do things in the space. And you can probably like, uh, maybe if you're lucky, uh, push the state of the art forward. But um, if you want to solve problems, it depends on whether it's the right tool for the problem. And so, and again, this goes back a little bit to what I said earlier, um, building the model is only a very small part of of the process usually. So if you want to, if you have a problem and um, let's say with logistic regression, you get 90% accuracy and with a deep neural net, you get 99% accuracy. On this data set, but probably um, if you spend uh, I don't know how many weeks making the deep neural net, or let's say maybe at least days to make the deep neural yeah. network work, um, then probably you're wasting your time because there's an issue in your data set, and uh, you should have probably formulated the problem in a different way. And so uh, by but figuring this out was also going to be harder for the deep neural network than it is for a logistic regression model. So I think you're missing out and you're slowing yourself down if you're. Um, interested in actually solving problems effectively. If you're interested in winning on Kaggle, maybe this uh, applies uh-huh. less. Hmm. Yeah, this, maybe, maybe you can just uh, take the, someone else's deep learning code and then tweak the parameters or maybe add some idea in there and it'll work. But this is, um, so it depends a lot on what do you want to do right.
0: Um, This also allows me to segue into another interesting aspect of your journey, you moved from industry back into research. Why did you decide to make the transition? And uh, did that allow you to have an interesting perspective on software in industry versus academia?
1: There's so oh my god, there's so much in this. Okay when when will this be aired
0: uh around 2 weeks from now
1: okay so then you all know that i'll be joining microsoft um in uh, the middle of june meaning i'm going to go back to industry okay and so um so that's So I I went back and forth. So basically after my PhD, I went to Amazon for a year. Then I went to um, NYU, then Columbia, and now I'm going to Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that I really appreciated about um, uh, academia was the freedom to work on uh, whatever I wanted to work on. So I I feel like my work on scikit-learn machine learning has a lot of impact. And I felt like even if my things get productionized at Amazon, I've less impact than if I work on scikit-learn, um, at least the kind of impact that I personally care about. Um, and so um, that's why I went to academia, because I had the freedom to work on these problems. The reason why I'm uh, leaving academia again is uh, basically it's hard to get funding for the kind of work that I want to do, and it's hard to get credit for it. So I'm on a, a soft money position at Columbia right now, meaning that I have to find money to pay myself and to pay my group. Hmm. Um, and that's a lot of work. And so either I w- would have to keep up doing that work indefinitely, or I would have to become a professor. To become a professor, I would actually need to uh, change what I do quite a bit and do much more research and publishing. And then I could become a professor in maybe six or seven years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, um, yeah. So going to industry back again, um, I guess uh, now my situation will be different than when I was at Amazon before in that now, I'm sort of more senior. And so now people will let me do more what I want to do. And they actually, they hire me because of my open source work and because of my position in the PyData data ecosystem, right? They want me to work on these things. Still, uh, I assume that I'll have less freedom than what I'll have in academia. In academia, I can do whatever I want uh, as long as I find money for it. Um, and so there's, there's pros and cons to that. Like basically security by freedom and also, um, somewhat the, the kind of access um, to resources. So at Columbia, I think, I mean, I was actually quite lucky. I have two amazing people working with me, uh, uh, Nicola Uck and uh, Thomas uh, Fan. And so I was able to fund them and they're doing amazing work. So they're all doing all the programming. I'm not really doing any of the programming. Uh, Nicola's did the history and gradient boosting. I don't know if you saw that. And Thomas did so much work in the visualization and the scoring and the debugging and in infrastructure. And so, um, yeah, so, but, but actually two people is a lot of resources in academia, in industry, it's nothing. If you look at what uh, what industry teams are, they have like 1020 people working on something. And so, I mean, it's this also makes it difficult, more difficult to coordinate with uh, open source teams. So if you have part of a team that's an industry, part of it is open source. Um, it's, it's different. There's like a, quite a difference between how the Apache ecosystem works and how the PyData ecosystem works, for example. Yeah. Um, but still, I think we, um, Pi, Pi, uh, needs to figure out better funding models. And I think one of them is, um, Becoming more directly connected to industry.
0: Um, OK. I, if, if I may say, it's, this is a little ahead of time, but uh, Microsoft is going towards a big push, making a big push towards open source. Uh, will you continue doing open source work there? Can you share a bit of that ahead of time?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I will definitely continue doing open source work there. Um, And I mean, there will be a balance between my personal project and coordinating between Microsoft and the PyData ecosystem. So one of the big things in my role will be, how can um, Microsoft product and um, product on Azure and SQL product and so on, how can they help the PyData ecosystem and how can they integrate well with the PyData ecosystem?
0: Okay, Um, I want to discuss uh... Uh, area that you were active in until recently uh, teaching at Columbia University. What courses did you teach there? I'm actually midway through your latest 2020 version of the course and would highly recommend it to the audience. But uh, any things that you have enjoyed and any mistakes you uh, recognize that students make while uh, doing data science courses or machine learning courses?
1: I think there was a lot of questions. Um, so the course that I, t- I basically only ever taught this course. I also taught a project capstone course, and I taught the applied machine learning, but four times. And so yeah, check it out on YouTube. It's there, the twenty nineteen and twenty twenty version. It's quite similar. Um,
0: and this is there on your channel, right? The, yeah, yeah. The thing to say YouTube. is YouTube.com okay.
1: slash Andreas Mueller, and okay. it's on YouTube and it's all free. There's also slides, and you can look at the homework. Um, what I'm doing right now actually, and I don't know how long it's going to take, um, is uh, I'm, I'm trying to make the course into a new book. And so hopefully this will be even more accessible so you'll have both the videos and the book. So currently the book that I have out with O'Reilly, the Introduction to Machine Learning with Python, um, is very introductory. I think I, I like it, but it's a little bit outdated and it's much more introductory than the the class I have on YouTube. And so basically, I want to create something that's a little bit more on the level of uh, my class at Columbia, but also still doesn't require a background in linear algebra and in statistics. Um, do, maybe, do you
0: have a timeline on when that will come out? When can we expect that?
1: Well, ideally, I would have it come out before um, I join Microsoft, but I don't think that's realistic. <laughs> Um, so like it depends on, um, what draft version, like, okay, I really want to do this summer. Okay. And my goal is for, for this to be freely available. So, um, as Jupyter notebooks and as HTML online.
0: that will be amazing.
1: Okay. So, but coming back to your other part of your question is like common mistakes. And so this is more um, mistake I saw in the project course, which is, um, well, basically all the things that I said, every mistake most people make is like not thinking about the bigger workflow, tweaking to model too long, not looking at the data not doing visualization well. Um, In particular, there were many projects where students were working for weeks on a deep learning solution and I told them, try rich regression, try rich regression, try rich regression. And then after uh, two months, they're like, Oh, we tried rich regression and it's better than our LSTM. And I'm like, yes, that's because your LSTM is not working and you have no baseline. Figure out what is the baseline? What, what will be the performance if you do constant prediction? What will be performance if you do like, the silliest baseline? I wasn't really saying you should use rich regression to solve this problem. It was like a time series prediction problem. Probably rich regression is not the right solution, but it will give you a baseline that tells you is my complex model actually working or not. And um, so they jumped to something really complicated that was really hard to make work. And uh, clearly it didn't work because the really simple solution beat it. Um, So that's a very common problem.
0: Um, Now, this is uh, an an issue that I think you've already addressed uh, in I think all of your previous interviews, but the gender bias in open source community and even in the tech community, widely speaking. What are your thoughts, and how can we cut down on that? You have already contributed to so many sprints with women uh, I believe. Uh, but what can we, uh, other developers from everyday, uh, contribute that that might be helpful?
1: This is a very serious topic and a very hard, um, hard problem, I think. And there's um, there's issues at so many levels. So the, th- the the issue that I guess I am focusing on is on the developer level or in the core developer um, level. So we have no female. Co- oh, sorry, we have one female core developer. Um, Nadeau all I can learn right now I think, but that's like that one out of twenty or twenty one. That's bad. Um, mm-hmm. And much of this HyPi ecosystem uh, projects are about as bad. And so one of the things I'm trying to do with the sprint is engage more people as developers. Um, Yeah, I I don't think I'm doing as good a job with that as I should. Um, But so probably one of the parts of the answer is um, mentoring and engaging with people. It's really, you get the best outcomes if you long-term engage with people on like a one-on-one basis and build like personal relationships. And um, but there's also obviously other parts of sort of the pipeline that are broken. Like if you look at uh, CS degrees, um, it's actually quite interesting. If, uh, the two programs I was involved in, you could see that um, in the, like there's a very uh, large foreign student population. Uh, of course, it's like maybe 50 or 60% of the students in the data science at Columbia and at um, NYU were Chinese. And in, uh, from Chinese students, actually, the gender ratio is pretty balanced. Then um, you can look at the next big, popu- big population is Indian students. There's maybe like 30%. Um, it's uh, less balanced. Maybe there's like 20% women or something, um, or 30% women. And then if you look at the US students and all the rest of the world, it's really terrible. Hmm. And it's like, I don't know, 10% or less. Um, that, that's. I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, in that, that there's such a big discrepancy between the different countries. So it seems to be um, at least okay. Obviously, this is not a perfect measure, but it seems to be uh, more of an issue in the U.S. and Europe than it is uh, in China, or than it is even in India, um, which is interesting. But so there's like, yeah, on the. CS students, data science students side on the developers in open source. Um, yeah, so I think um, oh, for the overall culture, I think um, maybe what might be important is like c- culture shift. So I'm not that involved with a lot of like the coding tech community, but I think there's still a lot of the like. Bro culture that you see in Silicon Valley that will definitely disincentivize uh, Mm. women from from joining uh, these companies. And so um, no matter what environment you're in, make sure that your environment environment is inviting. Maybe ask people why they don't join the the community or your company or uh, why they leave, what the problems are. It's often not... um, obvious. So I've seen this, it's I could learn that the the values are different, partially and the way people are communicate are different. And people that do advocacy and diversity tell me this. Um, There's um, so you might do things to turn away people that, that you're not aware of, because they interpret something that you do in a different way. And you need to make yourself aware of, and you need to change your behavior that's driving people away. Um, there was a really great talk recently um, when I was at, uh, oh my God, I forgot what it's called. Was it the Moosla on data science summit? I think it was called that still, maybe it changed its name. but. Uh, Oh, no, no, no. It was the Chan Zuckerberg. Yes, sorry. I go to too many data science summits. Um, (laughs) It was uh, Chan Zuckerberg has this amazing essential open source uh, software program where they fund uh, open source projects, um, both that are like core science and those that are like uh, biomedical. And there was a really great talk about diversity and I'll send you the link and you can include it maybe in the description or something.
0: Definitely. Now, uh, you've already given us so much, uh, broadly speaking, if I may dis- say speak on the data science uh, communities uh, point of view, but what's your favorite uh, activity outside of tech? Uh, what do you enjoy outside of tech?
1: Um, so th- this is probably hilarious. But right now, I'm really baking a lot of bread, like a lot of people in the US. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let's so say on I,
0: non-pandemic days, uh, what do you I
1: actually, I actually bake bread on non-pandemic, I used to bake bread on non-pandemic days, but oh, it's okay. very hard with your working days. So now I really got back into it. Um, other really than that, um, reading and uh, photography, I guess. Uh, sometimes I'm gaming a little bit, but not that much. Mostly I'm just reading some sci-fi novels and, and like uh, take pictures of my friends and stuff like that. Um,
0: okay, this this might be a really tough question. What's your favorite game of all time?
1: What's my favorite game of all time? <sighs> <laughs> I mean, so I used to play StarCraft One competitively in like a German League. StarCraft One, okay. and so this is definitely one of the contenders. Um,
0: let, let's pick two, one of all time. And maybe if you were to pick one today, the only game that you're allowed to play.
1: The only game. So uh, I really love world builder, uh, like no, sorry, i world building. So, okay, no, I can't, I can't pick one. So I'll have to you now have to listen to me rant about the games I'm playing. And you ask for this yourself. And so I'm I for a time I was super obsessed with city skylines with this like SimCities plus plus, but yeah. you also have to manage the traffic and the traffic lights and all of this stuff. It's super intricate and it's amazing. Um, then I've played Factorio recently and Satisfactory, which are both uh, factory building games, mm-hmm. like research management, which is great. And then one, one game that I really enjoyed that was like me not playing games for like several years and then I came um, so I was like, okay, what is the best game right now? Uh, and uh, I looked it up and basically Death Cells won. And so I played Death Cells for like a month because it's actually, it's not a kind of game that I usually play because I usually play more strategy, but it's such an amazing game. It has so many things that I've done so well. And I was like, oh my God, indie games have gotten really, really good.
0: <laughs> okay um if if I to ask you one final question, what would be your best advice to beginners who are looking to contribute to uh the open source or let's say SKLearn uh framework
1: so one of the things is um, maybe contribute to something you're using and that you're uh, passionate about also uh, think about the reasons why you want to contribute um, community benefits most for people that will stick around. So if you do like a, what's called a drive by contribution. So you send a PR and it gets merged and you never come back, that's can be useful but it's usually not as useful uh, that someone that sticks around. Having people that really stick around even if you're like not that advanced now uh, or don't have that like really super strong machine learning skills. If you stick around, you'll be really useful as, as someone that can review pull requests and that can um, like help the community move forward. Um, Also, yeah, pick something you care about. Maybe I would actually say, depending on your skill level, maybe don't pick scikit-learn because scikit-learn is actually quite hard to contribute to. Um, We tag issues as easy issues and simple issues and good first issues um, and they might be good, but scikit-learn is moving relatively slowly. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so, I mean, I'm obviously quite passionate about it, but if you want, you know, a quick return, and you want to have something that moves quickly and where you then maybe um, a smaller project or a newer project might be better. Like the, the way I developed Dabble is like 100% different than the way I developed so I could learn. And um, so Yep. Pick, I guess, pick what you want to contribute to somewhat carefully. I mean, maybe it doesn't matter so much for the first pull request, but if you want to get involved in the community, um, see what the community is like. Um, If you're frustrated by things being slow, then scikit-learn might not be the best for you because we can be really slow. Um, If you have a lot of patience and you really care about uh, machine learning algorithms, then uh, scikit-learn might be great. The other thing is maybe the biggest mistake that I see people make over and over again is they start with something big. If your first pull request to any project should be something small. And mm-hmm. um, if you're new to open source, maybe it can be something trivial, um, though make sure it's not something that annoys them. So personally, I love pull requests that fix typos in documentation. I other people that's how
0: you also started initially. That's how I started, this.
1: yes. and. Uh, some projects might think it's annoying. I don't or fix I also fix a lot of pep eight right now we don't really want pull requests that just fix pep eight issues. Uh, because they break like um, they break uh mergeability of other PRs maybe you might have conflicts and so on. So the you should find something that's very easy, but you're relatively certain that the people want it. Or it can be like a small feature that you really care. Let's say, I always wish they had x, and you add You ask, do you want X, and if they say yes, then you you give it. But um, try to do this with something small. Don't try to add a new feature because it will take a long time. It might not be in scope. And also, it's quite tricky for the maintainers. If they don't know you and they take a whole bunch of code from you, are you going to come back to maintain the code or not? Basically, there's a great uh, write-up, I think, by Brett Cannon that talks about the box of uh, puppies that says, like, basically, a pull request or a contribution is like a box of puppies, um, saying, like, well, you give it to some of them. It it might be cute now, but on the long term, you really need to have have to take care of it. And sort of the, the taking care of it is a lot much more work than giving the box of the puppies. And so trying to so if you do something small, or if you fix something in existing code, that's much more uh, likely to um, get the trust of the maintainers than adding a giant feature.
0: And that is equally important work if if I dare say so. Uh,
1: you, which one? I mean, the, the uh, fixing stuff is like at least as important. It's And it's much harder to get people to do it. One of the reasons we kind of stopped doing Google Summer of so Code with scikit-learn is Um, Well, there's two reasons. One it's very hard to scope projects that are three months long for scikit-learn because most of the work isn't like that because we don't add big things. And the other thing is that even if they add a thing, our actual bottleneck is reviewing the code, not contributions. We have a bunch of big contributions that are not reviewed lying around. So having a junior developer create or even a senior developer create a huge pile of code is not useful to Scikit-Learn because there's no one there to review it, and so um, yeah. The the question is really what is the what is the value add for the project? And if the project says, oh, we really need this huge thing, but we just no one has time to implement it. But this would be the be- the best thing ever if someone built this huge thing. Then maybe go build a huge thing. Uh, but maybe don't do that as the first thing. Maybe. Uh, do something small to learn the culture of the project, to uh, learn the process, um, to learn like how their CI is set up, ho- what kind of guidelines they use, and so on.
0: So, awesome. I missed out on one communi- community question that I'd like to ask now. Uh, what are your thoughts on Rapids or the shift towards uh, GPU based uh, frameworks?
1: Uh, also a good question so I haven't worked much with rapids um, from from what I understand the uh, quite quite good engineering team uh, over there um, working really hard um, I think it's a little bit it depends on your goals um, so for a lot of the algorithms you don't get as much of a speed up so I think um, what I heard for gradient boosting is you get like a 3x speed up realistically, maybe a 5x speed up. And um, then you can ask yourself, is it worth um, having extra hardware to get a uh, 3x speed up? And um, I mean, that's just something you have to evaluate for yourself. Like, What are the costs and benefits, like if I'm uh, doing this on the cloud, it It totally depends on the cloud prices. Like if the cloud is subsidized by NVIDIA and they it's uh, free to get uh, GPU's, then sure I'll take a free uh, three times speed up, right? But if it uh, if it's um, more expensive and that's not your bottleneck, then maybe it's not worth it. Um, And it depends a lot on the algorithm and on a data set. Like if your data set doesn't fit on the GPU, for example then but it does fit in RAM, maybe it's it could be that it's faster to do it in RAM than to do it on GPU. And so it d- depends on the data set size, and it depends on the algorithm, how how much you gain. And um, then it depends on your particular situation, is that gain worth it. Um, so th- this is the, the choice you should make as a user. As developer, we need to make a different choice, which is, do we want to uh, support GPUs and cyclelearn doesn't support GPUs, basically, because we don't want to deal with the pain that uh, of, like, um, dealing dealing with CUDA dependencies. Also, it would mean that basically rewriting each algorithm to have a CPU and a GPU version. Mm. And so we're glad that if the Rapids sky do that, that's uh, I'm Definitely. glad someone is doing it. I think I think it's great to have it. I think it's good to have an option to do this. I don't think it's necessarily the right solution for all the problems.
0: It's also a future-facing uh, direction of movement, if I, if I may.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I don't think the trade-off. I'm not sure how much the trade-off will change. I guess it depends on how the pricing and cloud providers will change. Yep. But I guess the pro- and they will. Change the price of the hardware potentially, but that's like, yeah, I don't know. I I think that's very hard to forecast because there's a strong interaction between, uh, I guess, how many, uh, like, whether. Uh, google puts a gpu in all of their uh or amazon puts a gpu in all of their boxes yeah. it's probably related to whether nvidia will buy, will build new factories and then will relate to how how expensive it is but there's probably a baseline price of building gpus uh, that you can't get down and so actually I, I i i don't know how how the pricing on this works but i think um the cost benefit analysis is what makes or breaks it yeah right
0: makes it Uh, Before we end the call. uh, I'll definitely have all of your profiles linked in the show notes. Uh, What but what would be the best platforms to connect with you. I know there's a YouTube channel as well. There's your website and your Twitter handle anything else that you'd like to mention.
1: Uh, I mean, any cycle related things go to the issue tracker, or if you just have a question, maybe go to the mailing list. Um, You can probably find my email, though. I guess generally, I don't really like answering questions per email because if everybody sends me a question per email, then I don't do anything else. So um, if you can find a different platform to ask your question, that's, uh, uh, that's probably works well. If you, if you want to engage about something, that, definitely send me an email. Uh, if you have ideas, um, I'm happy to like, email is probably the best way to reach me. Um, but uh, as the more I can take away from my inbox, the better.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, And yes, thank you so much. uh, On behalf of the community for all of your contributions and advance congratulations on the move to Microsoft.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was a lot of fun. A lot of great questions from the community.
0: Really enjoyed it. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.